One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How did get 30, 30, how get 30, how get 20, 20, 20, how get 20, 20, how get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Jeremy Cliff in Berlin. I'm Emily Tampkin in Washington, D.C. I'm Ida Vilk in Paris. It's Friday, the 8th of January. Welcome to World Review from the New Statesman. Thank you for joining us. Well, Happy New Year, everyone. And we received some very nice messages from some listeners over the turn of the year saying that, that you were enjoying World Review. So a particularly Happy New Year and thank you to you. We were going to make this episode solely about our predictions for the year ahead naively assuming that nothing so drastic would happen in the first few days of the year that we'd have to change plans. Clearly, we hadn't learned a lesson from 2020. So we will preface our predictions for the year as a whole with some thoughts about what's been happening in Washington, and then come back to that in a in an episode focused, in a pre-inauguration episode focused on that next week. But first, let's quickly run through our moments of the past week. Emily, I can guess what you think was significant in the past week. Tell us, tell us about that. Yeah, I mean, obviously, my moment of the past week was that when Congress met to certify the Electoral College results, which is meant to be procedural, Trump held a rally to stop the alleged steal, which again, was the election was not stolen. And that was followed by the storming of the Capitol building. In this episode, as in all episodes, you know, I, I will try to be objective and analytical about this. But as a US citizen and a DC resident, I kind of can't be, but I'll do my best. What is your moment of the past week? So I have a very uh, a short trio of events. I've been paying some attention to what's happening in Asia in the last few days. Several interesting things, most alarmingly and notably in Hong Kong, some 53 pro-democracy activists were were rounded up under China's national security law in a pretty emphatic illustration of how thoroughly the pro-democracy movement has been crushed there in the last sort of six to 12 months. So there's that. I was interested also in Japan. There's been some pretty bad polling for Prime Minister Yoshihide Suga, who some long-time listeners will know, took over from Shinzo Abe last year. Very popular at the start, but there was a poll out on Sunday saying that his 59% of people thought he hadn't handled the pandemic well, partly because he'd gone to a big steak dinner with a bunch of politicians and celebrities in December in contradiction of his own government's advice. Not irrelevant in this year in which we are expecting a Japanese general election in which Suga may or may not be the the front runner to be the, the next prime minister. And also, interestingly, in Indonesia, a country that we don't talk enough about, both we in general in Europe and the US, but also we on this podcast, the fourth most populous country in, in, in the world. Interesting event there, we saw the release of Abu Bakr Bashir, one of the masterminds of the 2002 Bali bombings, after not even 10 years in prison for his role in that, which was seen as quite a a generous move towards um, sort of Islamist elements in the country. And that comes against a backdrop in which Joko Widodo, the country's president, has been trying to uphold its traditional pluralism at a time of rising Islamist 
sectarianism. So I think that's worth watching. And I think one thing that links all three of those countries together, uh, China, Japan, and Indonesia, is that they all coped quite well with the initial surge of uh, COVID-19, but are now seeing rising numbers. That's been an issue in Japanese politics in recent weeks. Indonesia is now struggling where it didn't before. And even China, which has dealt uh, obviously pretty well with the virus has just put 11 million people into lockdown again. So um, interesting developments on that side of the world. With that, Ido, what what did you uh, take note of this week? I wrote for the newsletter on Qatar's relations with four neighbouring countries, so Bahrain, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, and the UAE, improving after nearly four years of blockade. So Qatar was, was accused of a litany of offences by its neighbours, um, including plots to destabilise its Saudi Arabia via the broadcast to Al Jazeera, which is owned by the state, and ties that were too close with Iran. The borders were closed and airspace was closed to, to Qatar, which is a very small country that only has a land border with, with Saudi Arabia. So it was meant to uh, force Qatar into giving in and, and uh, acquiescing to, to the demands of the neighbouring countries. But in fact, Qatar, which is a very rich country with huge oil and gas reserves, proved itself perfectly resilient. And just uh, all its flights just went through Iran, which meant that the very anti-Iranian countries that had imposed the blockade in Qatar, well, it was rather counterproductive for them because Qatar was just giving money to Iran to use its airspace. So um, it, it proved rather counterproductive. And after nearly four years of blockade, the blockade was lifted this week as part of an agreement negotiated by, I think, Kuwait and also Jared Kushner, who's shown an interest in, in the region. But the underlying issues, because Qatar proved so resilient and didn't really have to give in on any of them, still remain unresolved. So there will be some tension in the region, particularly around relations with Iran. Interesting, and clearly a story that also bears on our broader theme of what to watch in 2021. I think this is part of the broader ongoing story. So before we go on to the year ahead, Emily, taking very much into account your your point about commenting on this, not just as a journalist, but also as a rightly concerned American citizen and resident of Washington, D.C., why not just give us your take on, on what's been happening in the American capital in the last few days? I mean, it's been beamed around the world. We've all seen the horrifying scenes of the storming of the Capitol building. How did you experience it from where you are for, for a start? So I should say I was not at the Capitol building on Wednesday. I was in my neighborhood, which is in Northwest D.C., and you could hear the sirens coming by all afternoon. We walked our dog in the the backyard of our building, so as not to violate curfew at night. And the neighborhood next to mine had some of the Trump supporters staying like in Airbnbs. And so you, there were signs supporting Trump and sending people to anti-Semitic websites and racist websites. But I was not, I was not there at the Capitol. I don't want to make it sound like I was. What I would say is that the part that most surprised me was that Capitol Police were so unprepared for what happened because it was it was absolutely to be expected, right? You had President Donald Trump say to his supporters to come to Washington, D.C. on January 6th. You had them have a rally at which the president's attorney said, let's have a trial by combat. And when I heard that, I was like, what are you putting on trial? Democracy, as it turns out. You had the president's adult son say at the same rally, we're going to fight them in our own back. I'm going to be in their backyards fighting them. You had the, the president. Want- and, and, and the other part of all of this is that you also had Republican senators who either didn't say anything about how this was wrong or who actively supported this and said they were going to join in objecting to election results. 
Mike Pence, the vice president, who during the rally came out and said, actually, I don't have the power to overturn the election results, waited until the rally to say that, thus giving all of these people false hope that maybe actually the election results would be overturned. So with this combination of events, I personally am unclear as to how and why they were able to storm the Capitol. I have had a harder time going in to renew my press pass than some of the people I watched on Wednesday had entering that building. I have two questions on that, one very local and one very, very broad. And the very local question is, particularly as a DC resident, you know, a lot of, a lot of people who cover American politics actually live in Virginia or Maryland. So it's actually also interesting to talk to someone who actually lives in the, the, the federal district. One thinks of Washington as quite a liberal, as, as a very liberal city, in fact, one of the most liberal in the, in the union. I was interested to see quite, I mean, one knows you know, from outside America that, that there are problems with racism and right-wing extremism in the police. That's been made very clear over the last 12 months and before. But Washington sort of has this reputation as being a very liberal city and quite a very diverse city. Were you at all surprised at the willingness with which the police let these people rampage up to and into the capital? I was only because I thought that protecting Congress would have been taken more seriously as a task. And to find out that knowing that supporters were going to be in town, that they turned down offers of of support ahead of time, that was surprising to me. I was I was disgusted by the disparity in arrests made on June 1st during the Black Lives Matter protests and on Wednesday. You know, the fact that five times the number of people were arrested in back on that one day in June than they were the day that people stormed the Capitol in the city, that was appalling, but it was not surprising to me. Because yes, DC is a very liberal city. Yes, DC is a very diverse city, but it's also a very, it's a, it's a segregated city. And like all cities, the fact that you vote for Democrats does not mean that you don't have problems with racism. And I should say that it's not just that I think perhaps I don't want to disparage all of the Capitol Police, but I do think that to some police officers, a protest movement against police brutality is more threatening, is that the Black Lives Matter is more threatening to some police officers. Although we, as we saw, Trump supporters also turned on the police officers. One was quoted saying, you're not supposed to shoot at us, you're supposed to shoot at BLM. So Revealing. And the, the second very broad question, do you think we should use the word coup or coup attempt to talk about this? I've thought about this a lot. And what I have decided is that that to me, it, it's not such an important question. I think, first of all, I don't think that we'll know exactly what to call it and this era until the era is over. And I think I wrote a piece on saying like, we won't actually know if it's a coup until until it's over, back when Trump was unsuccessfully disputing election results. I think to me, the question is, is this as scary as it seems? There were people online debating like, well, was the military involved? And you could make the case that, yes, it was because at first the National Guard was not deployed at Trump's request. Or you could say no, because the military didn't join in in the end. So I think you, I, I think a person could make the case either way. And to me, rather than debating the academic definition, I personally would rather speak on the merits of what of what happened. And do I think that people should be extremely concerned and consider this an attempt to stop a legitimately elected government from taking office? Yes, I do. I think the slightly more interesting question is possibly, rather than asking, was this a coup, asking, what were they attempting to do? And what was the plan? And like, the really interesting thing is that it was, it was pretty clear that there wasn't an overarching plan, or it seems, it seems that way. 
there was there was no plan that like okay we're going to do this and therefore we're going to seize power like it was a kind of it was a it was a mob movement to get into the capital and then do what like walk around and take selfies well i do think though that we should note that on right-wing social media people were planning and you can say that this wasn't executed by like the brightest military minds but there were plans made ahead of time and people did bring you know tools with them that suggested they wanted to the very least cause serious physical harm to people in the capital but it but it doesn't seem to have been planned by trump himself no, I don't think he was like, and you guys jump over the wall and you take the right exit, you know? Right, exactly. And I think calling it a coup implies some level of like organization and kind of a plan and we're going to do this and take over the TV tower or what have you. I have to say, I'm, I'm always skeptical when people start bandying the word coup around without thinking about it. Not because they're not often describing bad and terrible things that maybe challenge the constitutional order of a country. You've seen coups a lot in European politics in recent years. But it is quite a specific term. And I think rushing to something, a term like that, just because it has a certain emotive resonance, doesn't mean that it describes what's going on very accurately. So I think I, think I agree with you with that. But what is interesting is these, the, the tactics that were used are more commonly associated with getting someone out rather than keeping someone in power. Which captures an important truth about the Trump presidency and actually some other political phenomena internationally that resemble it, which is this this need to be in the opposition even when you hold power. And you know, you you see it with Trump continuing to tweet and well, he doesn't really come out much in public these days, but continuing to tweet at least when Twitter allows him to, you know, make America great again. He's been in power for four years. It, it's it's this sort of oppositional mentality. I am really interested to see where well not I mean terrified, but interested to see where Trumpism goes after January the twentieth. And and in particular that's because basically, like, if you think of it, it's, it's so obvious a statement that it doesn't really bear saying, but Trumpism didn't exist before Trump, so before 2015, before Trump the candidate, before Trump running for political office, which means that when Trump ran for political office, by and large, his allies in the elite were people drawn from the Republican Party, which had existed before Trump, one of whose values was, we accept losing elections. And that meant people like Pence, for example, who ran as his, as his VP and had been previously been a governor and, you know, was part of the mainstream Republican Party and these people in Congress and so on. I am really interested to see what happens with Trumpism now, that there are hundreds of people in, in Congress now, some of them who, who voted to, to decertify the results or overturn the results of the election. Many of them will have gotten elected to Congress in the last four years under the banner of a Trumpist party rather than the Republican Party. Where does the Republican Party go? And where does Trumpism go now that there are these people who who do not come from the kind of Republican Party, quote unquote, evolved, as it saw itself, which accepted losing elections, but which is which under Trump was the party of Trumpism. And you had these people who, among other things, were elected under Trump's banner and who refused to, to accept his loss. And that pattern of quote-unquote, mainstream conservatives enabling the hard right is by no means confined to the US, as as I write in my newsletter piece this week. It's very much a feature of European politics and politics in other parts of the world too. But Emily, let's let's just conclude this overview with you. Where, where do you stand on, on what Ida just said? Do you, where do you think this, this takes us in the next four years? Well, I, I would note that, that while the Senate voted to certify the election results 93 to 6, a majority of House Republicans objected to the election results, to the certification. 
So it's not going anywhere. And it's, it's so interesting to see today Republican senators anonymously telling the press, oh, we should have done more over the past four years to stand up to Trump. My guy, there's two weeks left. So <laughs> I'm, I'm glad that you had this realization after they physically stormed the building where you work. But how did you think this movie was going to go? Did you think you were the director, Cruz or Holly or Mitch McConnell? You weren't. You were a supporting character because you let yourself be cast in that role. So I think it is going to continue in the Republican Party. I do not think that saying at the 11th hour, oh, oops, is sufficient. You had your chance to check him. You blew it. You blew it for four for four years. And the final thing that I would say is that part of the reason that the National Guard was not deployed more quickly is that D.C. is not a state. So we have to wait for the federal government. The federal government decides what to do with our with our own security. And the reason the D.C. is not a state is in part because of the same people who were busy checking D.C. statehood while they weren't checking Trump, right, who were so offended by the concept of two additional Democratic senators representing a majority African-American city, but were not offended by everything Trump has done by, over the past four years. We've talked a bit before you've written about it, and I'm sure we'll talk about it more over the coming year. But there's a big question, particularly in the wake of recent events, about whether Biden and his administration will pursue the sort of drastic sort of constitutional reform that the last four years, and particularly the last four days, have shown is so necessary. So a quick thought on particularly whether you think DC statehood, which is one of the one of the asks, I think, on that agenda, uh, but also the broader question of, of, of how drastically and radically a Biden administration would take on the obvious faults in the US political and constitutional order. Yes, not to be a cynic, but I don't think that we will have DC statehood. I think that there are Although it will be 50-50 because another moment of this week is that Democrats won both of the runoffs in Georgia. So a black preacher and a Jewish millennial will be representing Georgia in the U.S. Senate. It's still 50-50. That's quite close. And not all of those 50 Democrats are wildly or even slightly progressive. To me, it is so clear that D.C. should be a state, both because I want <laughs> representation and, and because it has a larger population than, than some states. If you look at the history it's clearly been a matter of disenfranchising Black Americans, but I just don't think it's going to happen. And more broadly, to be honest, I don't think this is going to be an era of sweeping progressive change, which, as I've written, I, I think we need to kind of make it through this moment in our democracy. But I don't know that the people in power feel that same way. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman on digital, in print, or both, from as little as £1 a week at newstatesman.com slash subscribe. That's just $2 a week in America. Let's move on to the main part of this episode, which was to look ahead to the year as a whole around the world. And the idea is that both Emily and I are making, we talked a bit about our what we got right and wrong about 2020 in the last episode. We're both writing pieces in which we're making predictions about the, the year ahead that we will come back to in 12 months and, and assess, which will be on the New Statesman website very soon as we record this. So we've each picked out three that we're going to present and we're going to throw them around a bit and see what we make of them, see what Ida makes of them. So Emily, why don't you start with your first of your selected three predictions for the world in 2021? This is my only US one, I promise. Looking at the way in which the US is carrying out its vaccinations right now, I don't think that we will be able to safely go outside until mid-autumn. It has been, again, oh, look, I understand that this is a difficult job. I understand that people in power are tasked with this, with, a, with an 
awesome responsibility. However, they did know that a vaccine was coming out. And so the fact that there are vaccines expiring because people are like, oh, we don't have enough eligible bodies. It's like, well, you actually have millions of people who would like the vaccine. I've not been super uh, inspired by the way this has gone so far and think it will continue to go badly. I'm going to bring in my first first here because I think we can talk about the two together because they're actually quite great minds think alike, Emily, and they're quite similar. Mine is essentially a fairly similar point about the overall world. I think that the idea that we're going to have a meaningful return to normality in 2021 is very unlikely. And I think that by the end of the year, and I'm willing to be held to account on this prediction, that saying that, oh, the last months or the last year has been a return to normality will feel very out of place in the majority of parts of the world. And I think that the pandemic will, unless something very, very dramatic happens, touch wood, be by far the biggest global subject, even at the end of this year. And that cuts against, I think, some of the slightly more optimistic takes about the way that a, a vaccine will kind of bring everything back to normal. And I think that those those takes have some merit, particularly in that they, I think they touch on the fact that there is a huge appetite for, for, for things to go back to normal. People are Wherever they are in the world, there, there is a huge desire just to, to to get back to where things were and to move forward. But I just think that even in the rich world, and we'll I'll come on to the not so rich world later in, in this discussion, but even in the, in the rich world, you look at the difficulties in rolling out vaccines, the issues around vaccine hesitancy that have emerged in the first few weeks of vaccinations. It's clearly going to be a rocky road to herd immunity, even in in, in, U- in the US, as you've just said, Emily, and I absolutely agree with what you just said, but also in Europe and elsewhere, I think it's going to be difficult. But also in other parts of the world too, because of course, in a lot of the world, the, the vaccines that are now rolling out in rich countries won't arrive for the vast majority of people until in the best case, later this year and possibly next year, or even possibly the year after that, according to some more pessimistic predictions. So the idea that you, you, you know, the vaccinations that are now rolling out in places like the UK or Israel speak for a kind of a, a rapid return to normality worldwide, I think is, is for the birds. You know, you're going to have large parts of the world where this doesn't take place or this doesn't take hold until much later. And you're also going to have the economic aftershocks of the pandemic. And again, I think that will be different, felt differently in different places. Places. So, you know, the rich world has been able to fund furlough schemes and stimulus programs pushing its economies through where poorer countries won't be able to. So you're going to have the economic aftershocks will be felt long into the latter half of the year. And I think that if a normality returns, it will also be quite a different normality. I, I, I really think we might be underestimating how differently people's habits will play out in the after pandemic era, things have changed that I don't think will go back to how they were before, whether it's to do with working habits, the use of technology, the way people travel, elements to do with the global order, I think will be very different. And so the whole idea that 2021 is going to be the year of back to normal, I think is is nonsense. Ido, tell us where you agree and where you disagree. I actually I actually don't really think I agree with you, at least not in the not in the rich world. I think a combination of Warmer weather, which from last year we know means that you can get not completely back to normal, but pretty close, plus the the vaccine rollout. Because I think the thing you have to remember about the vaccine rollout is we talk about these figures, you know, we have to get to like 5 million jabs a week or something. But you don't get to that from one week to the next. You go from, you know, from zero to 100,000 to 500,000 to a million and so on. And the capacity increases every week. And I think a combination of warmer weather plus 
the vaccine rollout. And I, I think what you really have to remember about the vaccine rollout is governments can afford to sink unlimited money amounts of money into this. Like there has never been a better multiplier of government spending ever, and there will never be a better multiplier of government spending. Agreed. Every day of lockdown costs, like certainly rich economies, billions. And, you know, if you have to pay five times more for a vaccine or, you know, there's some bottleneck because doctors aren't giving it fast enough or whatever, just pay them five times more and it's still worth it. And I, I think governments will come to will come to realise that. And it's it's a, a theme I think you've you've touched on, which is that there's been an obsession with the cost of vaccines, for instance, in, in Europe, in the EU, which a lot of people are coming to see as slightly misguided because you can get a dose at slightly cheaper than another country but if that country manages to get it faster and to get it into people's arms faster that is a way better use of money than it is you know saving like 30 percent on a dose or something i think an interesting test of this will be the olympic games in tokyo which were postponed from last year and are due to start this year on um, the 23rd of july i mentioned at the at the top of this episode that there are there are issues with rising infections in japan at the moment there's a lot of expectation riding on the idea that the Tokyo Olympic Games will be the world's kind of coming back show. It will be the, the, the sort of the reopening of it will be the as it were the kind of the opening ceremony of the reopening of the world after after the pandemic. I totally take your point. I think that governments will step up and throw resources at getting things back to normal. And then against that, I think well, I observe that there are now growing concerns about where the those Olympic Games will be able to go ahead in any sort of recognisable way. And so we'll see. But um, I wonder if if we're letting our optimism and hope, and we need a lot of that at the moment, perhaps make us blind to the the long slog of getting out of the crisis of the last 12 months. But we will see. And I think, I think you make a good point about vaccines. So we have discussed the protests in Belarus a lot over the course of the past year and how they're different and the, the bravery that the people of Belarus have, have shown. And I don't mean to underestimate any of that. Would also just briefly here say that people who on Wednesday were like, this is like watching Belarus. Those people were protesting for democracy. So first of all, <laughs> first of all, this is happening in America. You don't need to try to exoticize it. Okay, this is this is on us. Second of all, it's a bad comparison. <laughs> it's unfair to Belarus. But anyway, um, my prediction, unfortunately, for the next year is that I don't think that Lukashenko will be gone from power in the next year. I, I just don't see that there are, that the levers that will need to be pulled can be pulled. Like I don't, I don't know what other leverage there is to to get him out. Um, but I wanted to hear what what Ito had to say. Yeah, um, I remember you gently chiding me on an earlier episode of this podcast. It wasn't, it wasn't chiding. I was just just questioning. <laughs> saying that I was much too optimistic, and uh, sadly you've been proven right, and uh, my bright side optimism has uh, been dashed. The only thing I would note is that. I don't think the situation now in Belarus is the same as it was before the quote-unquote election in, I think, August, just because there are weekly protests. And in a piece before the election, Felix and I, Felix Light and I, said that his Lukashenko's aura had been permanently dented, this kind of aura of invalibility. And I think that has held true. And I think there's a difference between kind of holding on through through this perception that you are in, infallible and holding on kind of by default because you have this dictator has the complete control over the security forces and the state apparatus. I think there's a slight difference there. But equally, the leader in exile, Svetlana Tikhanovskaya, 
doesn't seem to have a good plan for getting power. You know, she she does a lot of interviews. She um she does a lot of kind of advocacy, but she she isn't really running a government in exile, and she doesn't she doesn't really seem to have a plan to push Lukashenko out of power. What do you think the protest movement as a whole plans to do in twenty twenty one? I don't really think they have a plan yet. I think the protesters want to keep going, and I would I would expect them to keep going. They are still going. It's been uh, something like five months and they're, and they're still going. They still protest every Sunday. The only thing that could change things is Lukashenko has announced a constitutional referendum to be held, I think, this year with some kind of changes to, I assume, the office of the presidency, which will do two things. First of all, it will kind of, it should change constitutional structures, at least on paper. And also it will allow another avenue for opposition to Lukashenko if it does go ahead to, to be expressed. And so I would, I would imagine that that constitutional referendum will become a kind of, it will become another event where people can express their dissatisfaction with the system. Whether that that is, for instance, boycotting the, the vote because it's just an exercise intended to legitimise Lukashenko's rule further, or whether it's rejecting the changes because they're illegitimate, or whether it's accepting them, um, I don't know. But I would expect that it will become another proxy for opposition to Lukashenko. So that, so I don't think it'll stay static. I think over the next year, if the referendum, particularly if the referendum goes ahead, the movement will evolve. And I, I wouldn't expect it to go anywhere, although I agree with you, Emily, that I think at least for the next year, he is secure in power. Onwards, my, my second prediction is that the US will complete its withdrawal from Afghanistan. 2021 will, of course, be the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks and of the US and coalition invasion of Afghanistan in 2001. And yet the US is still there. And yet the US is also on its way out. Trump began, or the Trump administration began talks with the Taliban last year and has been have been reducing the troop presence. The latest target is to get it down to 2,500 US troops in the country by the middle of this month, down from a a peak of 100,000 back at the start of uh, the last decade. I think it will be a big question this year. Will the forever war to end all forever wars actually end? And the chances of it doing so look better than they probably ever have before. The willingness on the side of the US to stay in the in, in the Afghanistan conflict is very low. The Taliban has been uh, making progress in the last few months, very much pushing the bounds of its early agreements with the US, whereby there would be some peace process. The Afghan government is looking in a very bad shape. And under the proposed plan, the US will be out by the end of May this year. And the question is, what will the Biden administration do about this when it comes in? On the one hand, it can it can choose to stay in Afghanistan longer, try and support the government and push back against the Taliban and continue negotiations and whereby it only leaves the country when it is clear that there will be some sort of satisfactory power sharing agreement or whatever. Alternatively, it can pull out on the current timetable in the next few months, leaving either very few or no US forces in the country. And there, the chance that the Taliban ends up running the country one way or another is much greater. My thought is that the the Biden will ultimately go for something that more resembles the second of those two outcomes. I think that the fact that the troop numbers are now so low means that the US can't meaningfully support the current government anyway. The idea of ramping up troop numbers again is out of the pretty much out of the question. 
And I think also there are, and this is where I'd, I'd be very interested to hear Emily's view on the whole whole matter, but I think particularly the, the domestic politics of this, I think point to Biden accepting some sort of arrangement with the Taliban, where in return for the final withdrawal of US troops, maybe some sort of deal involving other regional powers, maybe a a big load of US money to kind of lubricate the whole thing. The US does essentially leave, but for maybe a few special forces or or advisors to the government. And I think that's just because, you know, what does Biden have to do when he comes into office? He's got a polarized country. He's got a, a country that is really tired of its foreign adventures. You know, you hear this, obviously, there's a lot of talk about the US returning to the global alliance system and to its global role under Biden, becoming a responsible player again. And I think there'll be some of that. But at the same time, there's also a lot of talk about, which actually in some ways dovetails with the Trump foreign policy agenda in certain areas, about bringing foreign policy home and making foreign policy serve US interests. And you know, Biden has said he wants to end these forever wars. Pulling out of Afghanistan is popular with the US public at large, at least from the polls that I read. read. It would be a, a bridge to Trump voters as a priority of the outgoing administration. It's also a bridge to the left, which also wants to see US troops out of Afghanistan. So for me, I think that the domestic politics and the fact that it is going to be so hard to stay in Afghanistan and make things better with the current arrangements point to the to, to a pragmatic decision by Biden to pull out. Emily, do you think I'm wrong? I, I don't know that you're wrong in the long run, but I do think that he's going to try to continue to leave a small number of special forces there for a while, which could complicate things because that could be seen as breaking the the terms of the deal. I just think that he's such a creature of the foreign policy establishment, which is so uncomfortable with the idea of a complete withdrawal from Afghanistan, that it's going to be a long journey home. Although I completely agree with you on the US not being able to quote unquote win or really help in any meaningful way. And also with how deeply unpopular the forever war is here at home. And we should also note that in, in 2008, 2009, he was against the surge in Afghanistan. But I think, nevertheless, having said, yes, I want to have a, a small number of troops there, he will continue to try to do that, at least for at least for a while. Do you think the US should pull out as soon as possible? I do. I understand that it's always more complicated and that there are other forces at play. And well, if you pull out of Afghanistan, what happens to Pakistan and what happens to India and what happens to the women of Afghanistan, all of which are legitimate questions. But we've been staying there and I don't I don't know that we've been helping anyone for what almost two decades now it's it's definitely a least worst outcome choice i think and 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 really a tragedy i mean i think i think that reflections on the past 20 years will not be will not be very happy ones unfortunately when it comes to that later this year with that emily what's your third and final prediction my last prediction of gloom and doom is that as we saw in 2020 clashes between india and china will continue to get worse i mean both on on the border but i also mean just in general, economically, diplomatically, I think that we're going to see India and China at more loggerheads in 2021. So on that, I'd like to, to hear, first of all, India's treading a difficult path here because it obviously is being drawn inexorably, or arguably inexorably into a China sceptic alliance with other for- forces in the Indo-Pacific, with the US, with others. And on the other hand, it also has an important economic relationship with China and, you know, is definitely the weaker of the two powers. You can just see that economically. I mean, you look at the last year, it's been a huge, you know, relatively speaking, it's been a boon for China's position in the world economy. And it's been a pretty bad year for India's position by any measure. Do you think that the, the Indian, you know, you, you've been in, studied and interviewed people in, in Delhi. Do you think that the Indian establishment would go into that 
you know, under Modi kind of knowingly? Or do you, do you see this escalation happening more by accident? Both. I think if India is not doing so well domestically, then this escalation of rhetoric uh, could be useful politically. And I also think it's not it's not up to them, right? It's up to it's up to China to a certain extent. And I would also just say that this idea of like the US and India and other, you know, this idea of democracies against China, first of all, you already have defectors, right? You already have the EU signing deals with with China that the US and India are now saying, like, what are you what are you what are you doing? I thought we were all on the same page on this. But more than that, the idea that we're all going to be a democratic alliance against China, it's like, okay, well, we have the US where people literally just stormed the capital. And then we have India where, you know, Prime Minister Narendra Modi came out and said and, and disavowed this violence, but also spent the better part of the past year putting forth policies or allowing policies that are against the Muslim population of India. Muslims were violently attacked in Delhi while Trump was visiting Gujarat. So I'm not totally convinced that these two countries are equipped to show a united democratic front against China. I think this is a great prediction, not just because I think you're you're right about about this, but also because the whole subject of global alliances against China or global alliances of China skeptic powers will be a big subject of 2021. Biden has said that he wants to hold a summit of democracies, which which appears to be in keeping with this whole idea of first of all the Indo-Pacific, so building a kind of alliance between different countries that that share a broadly democratic outlook and a skepticism of China. India, Australia, and so forth, plus then the European Union. You also have the UK government wants to invite and has invited the leaders of India, South Korea, and Australia to the G7 summit this year, which the UK will be hosting as part of a so-called D10, where you you basically kind of upgrade the G7 to a broader alliance of democratic countries, one of whose common features is that they they, they worry about like, Beijing's ambitions. And I think it will be very interesting to see how this idea that you can build a sort of coherent alliance of China scepticism among democratic countries will play out over the course of the year. I think I share some of your scepticism. I, I think that in a lot of cases, yes, there are some common interests between those countries, and I'm sure they'll find common talking points and maybe some areas of agreement on action. But as you say, Emily, the transatlantic relationship, which will surely improve this year with the Biden presidency, will still have its tensions over the relationship with China, as we saw with the EU investment agreement with China signed in the in the dying days of 2020, over subjects like digital uh, regulation and taxation, big tech and so forth, over issues like defence and security, the Middle East. And so, you know, the, the transatlantic relationship is not necessarily as tight as this whole idea would suggest. And then you have other countries that are supposed to be part of this big family of China skeptic democracies like India, also like South Korea, or also like Australia that have their own interests and outlooks. And I, I do wonder if some are getting carried away with the idea of this as some sort of new, new NATO, new G7, kind of new alliance on, on the world stage. It's an alliance, but it's based on values. <laughs> like, okay, as opposed to all the other alliances that we tried. Like. Exactly. It's based on some values and some interests, but also it, it contains countries with other values and, and particularly other interests. <laughs> right. So right. let's see how it plays out. I don't want to kind of condemn it to meaninglessness, but I, I, I think some takes on this get a bit carried away with, with, with what it can actually end up meaning. So my final prediction, third and final, is I think that we will see political crisis in particular in mid-income countries this year. I mentioned earlier on in this episode that you're going to see a bit of a, a bifurcation of interest between the rich countries that get the vaccine out fast and have also managed to keep their 
their economies afloat with generous support programs over the course of the lockdowns and the rest of the world. And I think that mid-income countries will experience a particular set of circumstances, which is that these are often countries, and I'm thinking of the likes of Turkey, Iran, Russia, South Africa, maybe just about India, that have sort of got used to the idea that they are growing, emerging economies. And they've got fairly sizable, educated, mobile middle classes that have expected that their living standards will get better. And it's going to be a really hard year for these countries because the vaccine won't come fast. There is in most or all of these countries major economic strife and in many cases rising unemployment, falling living standards. In in some cases, you're going to be talking about the IMF stepping in to support economies. And I think that particularly set against the backdrop of the kind of 2019-20 protest movements, people clearly have the means and the inclination to get out on the streets and to protest about these sort of things. And I think we're going to see a lot of that this year. A protest about situation within countries, whether it's corruption, incompetence, failure to get vaccines out, governments not doing enough to support people in financial difficulties, or whether it's a kind of a more of a global justice argument about you know why the the global south is struggling, where the kind of the rich countries are moving on with their vaccine programs and so forth. And I think that's going to be particularly relevant, uh, and this is the more specific part of my prediction in Latin America, which has got a big year of elections coming up. There are presidential elections coming up in Ecuador, Peru, and Chile. There are also legislative elections in Argentina, Mexico, Nicaragua, El Salvador, and Honduras. And I think that this spate of electoral choices in Latin America, a continent that has been particularly hard hit by the combination of the virus and the economic fallout of the virus, is set to cause major political upheaval. There are, in in several of those countries, there are growing populist movements. Many of those countries For example, Chile, we've seen significant protests already in the last few years. And I think that Latin America will be a particular, particularly stark example of this broader trend of sort of mid-income political turmoil. So that's my final prediction. Both of you, as Russia watchers, where do you see things for for Putin? Because I think, you know, from, from what I read about the state of the Russian economy and looking back on a fairly difficult 2020 for Putin... Where do, where do you see things going there? Because I've, I've certainly categorised that among, among these other mid-income countries. So there, there are Duma elections in Russia at some point in the autumn next year, I think. And one of the themes there is that United Russia, so the, the ruling party, Putin's party, is reportedly quite worried that its local allies are going to be too good at rigging elections and too good at ballot stuffing. And it might produce the kind of outlandish results that would result in street protests like they've seen in neighbouring Belarus. And they really don't don't want that. They want it to be a victory, but kind of not such a landslide as to seem implausible. And so apparently they're, they're sort of telling their local allies, telling local officials, you need to, you know, you need to tamp it down, you need to chill out a little bit, which I think kind of illustrates the sensitivity and the the, the worries that the Kremlin has about public opinion. They're very, very sensitive to it. It's been a big year for protest across... Last year was a big year for protest across the former Soviet Union. There were protests in Khabarovsk, which we talked about, uh, Belarus, obviously, and Kyrgyzstan too. They'll be wanting, essentially, to make sure that the situation remains quite stable. And part of that is avoiding the kind of ridiculous election results that resulted in um, the protests that were ongoing in Belarus. I think that's a really important point, in part because I've come to think that if Putin's power is going to be challenged, it will be at first at the periphery and not in the center, 
right? You, you have these big, occasionally we'll have these very dramatic protests in Moscow. And that's, it's, I'm not trying to say that they're not important. I think that they are. But I think that it's farther from the capital that we'll start to see, if we start to see political change in Russia, it will be there. So those are six featured predictions for the year ahead. But both Emily and I, as I mentioned, will be publishing our full overview of our predictions for the coming year. So do look out for those. And we will also be linking to them in next week's issue of the World Review newsletter. So look out for those and have a look at them. See if you agree or disagree. And at the end of the year, come back and tell us what we got wrong. We will certainly attempt to do that from our side. So with that, let's just finish off with our thoughts, not for the week ahead, because this is meant to be a grand prediction episode of World Review looking ahead at the whole year, but the year ahead. Let's all cite one thing that we will be paying particular attention to over the next 12 months. Ido, do you want to start off? Yeah, so as I mentioned, there are the Duma elections in Russia, and there are also Dutch elections on the 17th of March. I'll be particularly interested in the elections in the Netherlands, just because the Netherlands has a very funny electoral system where if you get one 150th of the vote, you get one seat. It's a fantastic electoral system, and I will hear no word spoken against it. Anyway, continue. But... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, the, how the far right perform there will be interesting. The far right have in, in the Netherlands have traditionally pulled quite well between elections and then collapsed in the run-up to elections and don't end up doing that well and certainly not close to well enough to envisage forming a government. So it will be interesting to see how they perform. Emily? I think a major story of the year, this is kind of cheating because it's already a major story of the year, will be Hong Kong. The, here in the States, we've been distracted by the Georgia runoffs and by the storming of our own capital. But there's already, in the first week of this year, been such a dramatic crackdown on everyone in Hong Kong. And I think if you are pro-democracy, which I think listeners of this podcast are, I, I think that it will get worse, not better, over the course of the year. Yeah. What about you, Jeremy? I, I just add to that that there will be legislative elections in Hong Kong in September, which I think will be an illustration of quite how bad things have got, or at least the, the, the run-up to which will be an illustration of how bad things have got. I will be looking out for the COP summit in Glasgow, which was postponed from last year, which will start on November the 1st, and which is going to be a really significant moment. It's going to be a, the point at which the, the parties involved in the Paris Agreement in 2015 kind of review where they've got to and ideally make new commitments, getting them closer to the kind of 1.5 to 2 degrees centigrade global temperature rises which the Paris Agreement set as a goal. The current commitments made by governments don't get us close enough to that. You know, we're still talking kind of higher uh, temperature rises that involve more apocalyptic outcomes over the, the course of the century. And it's going to be interesting because I have to say, admittedly, a lot of our predictions have been quite pessimistic over the course of this podcast. But here I see a glimpse of optimism. I've mentioned before that there have been some quite interesting new commitments to decarbonisation on the part of polities like the EU, China, South Korea, Japan in the last few months. And with Biden taking office on January the 20th, we understand that one of his first priorities will be to rejoin the Paris Agreement. But he also wants to get to net zero by 2050. And, you know, a lot of very positive commitments there. But I think that Glasgow and the COP summit will be the proof of whether of what those actually mean, because that's where countries will have to commit to interim targets that I think will tell us a lot more about their actual willingness to follow through on these kind of long-term perspectives or these long-term goals. So I think that's going to be a really important part of, of, of the year. Also geopolitically, you're going to see a lot of it in other themes that we've touched on in this episode play out there. The US-China relationship, the idea of whether you have a, an alliance of countries standing up to China, conversely, whether China can play a more kind of 
positive role on that particular subject. You're going to see countries in the global south that are struggling economically, making the case that they need to have special treatment. A lot of interesting factors there, and I think it's going to be absolutely fascinating to follow. And you'll be able to do so, as with all of the subjects we've discussed on this episode, on the New Statesman, newstatesman.com slash international. And of course, by listening to this World Review podcast, telling your friends about it, telling everyone how great it is, and also subscribing to the World Review newsletter. So with that, thank you, Emily and Ido, for your thoughts and insights. Our pleasure and also our job. And thank you, as always, to producer Nick Hilton. Thank you for listening. Happy New Year. And until next week. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, Freddie here. I want to tell you about a new way you can support the New Statesman's independent journalism. Every morning I send out Morning Call, our daily newsletter covering everything you need to know about British politics. It's free to sign up, plus for just £3 a month, you'll get a recommended daily piece of ours sent to you in full, plus exclusive polling analysis from Ben Walker, a weekly update from Will Dunn, and our featured piece on Sundays. If you enjoy this podcast, you'll love Morning Call. Head to morningcall.substack.com and subscribe now.